concerns about AIs have now reached a point of hysteria, which is not to say that AIs won't change life very profoundly, perhaps often dramatically, but the tone in which the threat of AIs is currently being pitched suggests that something more is going on than just a worry about technological development. The predictions that the last human being might be wiped out by AIs suggest the hysteria. And I think a clue as to what's going on can be found in the writings of the latest AI luminary, Stuart Russell, to have come out with this barrage of fear. He wrote a book called Human Compatible a couple of years back, and I reviewed the book. And of course, it's very brilliant about AIs and the way that they're developing. But his answer to this threat is strikingly weak. He calls on us human beings to learn again what it might be to be human and then to ensure through a few procedural rules that AIs are serving what is in our best interests. But it's very striking from the book that just what it is to be human, he has very little to say about it. And I think that that's what's at the heart of the hysteria behind AI. Unconsciously, what is being thrown up is the sense of loss, of contact with what makes us human, perhaps because the AI luminary inevitably has to spend the whole of their lives immersed in the world of the AI, and that brings about this sense of existential alienation. But of course, every crisis is also an opportunity, a potential turning point. And this is where I think the figure of Jesus can help. I'm prompted to turn in this direction because of having just read another book by David Lloyd Dusenbury called I Judge No One, A Political Life of Jesus. And it's very fascinating, very brilliantly done. Let me take a deep dive into what David Lloyd Dusenbury gets at in his reading of the Jesus of the Gospels by thinking about the woman caught in adultery, one of the best known passages from the Gospel of John. And this is the story of the woman who is caught in flagrante delicto, hauled up before Jesus with a whole bunch of witnesses. And they insist that Jesus judges her according to the law, which means the brutal stoning of her to death. And David Lloyd Dusenbury examines this story to get to the heart of what Jesus, as a political figure, by which he means someone who is in the world and living a life in the world, is able to find a pathway that is in the world, but not of the world. And it's that not of the world that gives the clue as to how Jesus can help us rediscover our humanity. It's the path of paradox. The book by David Lloyd Dusenbury is called I Judge No One. And that immediately throws up the thought that but Jesus did also say, I come to judge. That paradox, that contrary, as William Blake would put it, saying seemingly incommensurable things, I judge no one, I come to judge, gives us a clue to a kind of edge, a kind of vanguard, which if we can inhabit that space, 
is the place where new potentials for our humanity can emerge. And that is what is at the heart of being human. It's to be able to live in that creative, imaginative, edgy, difficult, uncertain zone, but which puts us in contact with the source of life itself. And from that springs all that we can know consciously about the richness of life. So to return to the story of the woman caught in adultery, how is this displayed? Well, Jesus famously writes in the sand with his fingers. He does it twice, in fact, as they're pressing on him, seemingly closing their trap around him. And then Jesus comes up with the famous brilliant reply, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Now, at first pass, you can read this as saying that Jesus is holding a mirror up to them, putting them to shame, because, of course, they too will have broken the law, as Jesus puts it in another place, even to have looked at someone in lust is to have committed adultery. But something more subtle is going on than just a kind of good one-two, a zero-sum game. Because what happens in that moment, Dusenbury explains, is that Jesus both respects the law, but indefinitely suspends it. The person who can enact the law is the person who is without sin. Now, they realise that they aren't without sin, so can't enact the law and turn away one by one until Jesus is left just with the woman herself. And Jesus, of course, is within the horizons of the Gospels, the one who is without sin and so could cast the first stone. And yet what he then says to her is the new potential that emerges because he's hovering at this space of uncertainty, unknowing, suspension. When he first of all says to her, where are your accusers? And she says, they have gone. There's just the two of them there, nicely honing this moment of suspense. And he then says to her, and I say to you, go as well and sin no more. So in that moment, he both judges her. He says that what she did was a sin, but so as to save her, rather than so as to condemn her, to free her, to give her the new possibility of life. And that is the meaning of Jesus saying, I come to judge no one, whilst at the same time judging everybody. He judges not so as to fulfil the current state of affairs in the world, but this worldly dispensation, the world that in Jesus's time would have been judged by the Judean law, in our time would be judged by standard forms of morality or indeed the law too, and instead creates a new possibility for her, for him. Another story that Dusenbury explores um, that illustrates this edge that Jesus constantly seeks so as to enable people to be saved, to rediscover their humanity, is the famous remark of rendering to Caesar that which is Caesar's and to God that which is God's. Again, it's a sort of trap. The Pharisees ask whether they should pay the tax to Caesar. 
Jesus asks to look at a denarii, um, which in itself was quite a risky thing to do because it has the image of Caesar on it. And many of Jesus's contemporaries would have thought that even to look at the image of Caesar was itself a form of idolatry. But Jesus does that. He's not afraid of looking impure. That perhaps is another important factor in all this. And then comes up with his remark, render to Caesar that which is Caesar's and that render to God that which is God's. And the brilliance again of this phrase isn't just a kind of neat response, a neat formula, a bit like saying to the accusers, let him who was without sin cast the first stone. The brilliance is that it both halts that discourse, suspends it and creates a new possibility because it raises the question, if you're rendering to Caesar's what is Caesar's, if you're, it's okay to render to Caesar's what is Caesar's, not to get so fixated and bound up with whether you should pay taxes or not, as if the whole of your religious conviction turned on that moral question. Rather, what Jesus is doing is saying, look, do what's necessary in this world, but in the same moment, keep open the space for discovering something that's not of this world. And that is contained in the second part of the expression, render to God what is God's, because it gets you to ask, so what would that be, rendering to God what is God's? And Dusenbury unpacks how, looking at Jesus's ministry in the round, that includes all those things which are not money-like, are not transactional, are not about exchange, are not about property or possession, but rather are about gift, are about worship, devotion, are about love, are about, maybe above all, forgiveness. And the thing about that which is gift, that which is forgiveness, that which is love, as it keeps you again at this edge of being receptive to new possibilities in life. And so moving towards the kingdom of God and away from the kingdom of this world, even whilst you're in this world. Now, this has been noticed by great Christian writers who have put it in other ways at other times. Um, Dostoevsky and the brothers Karamazov, the famous scene between the Grand Inquisitor and Jesus, where the Grand Inquisitor is living very much in this world, asking Jesus to meet people's material needs, to bring a sense of moral clarity, to bring security and safety to people. Great pastoral concerns, not bad at all, and yet still caught up in the anxieties and worries of this world. And the figure of Jesus in Dostoevsky cuts across that again, opens up this new possibility, this new glimpse of light by kissing the Grand Inquisitor in response, a reaction that is completely of a different order, from a different zone, a different domain that halts the Grand Inquisitor in his tracks. He doesn't know what to do, but what Dostoevsky is saying to we readers is, can we move to that place of unknowing, which is also the place of new reception. I think William Blake was onto this as well. Um, he says many, many times, I know of no other gospel than the gospel of forgiveness. Jesus brought nothing in new into the world that hadn't been said by Ovid and Plato. He says at one point, purely in terms of moral insights, but what Jesus did do is bring this moment of forgiveness that's the metanoia, a place of turning around, new possibility. And that wasn't fully conceived by those who came before him. 
the idea that God was breaking through and that what it is to be human is to be able to be consciously aligned, looking, receptive to that place of breakthrough. Blake says it in other ways at other times in The Marriage of Heaven and Hell, where he says that energy is eternal delight. Energy is eternal delight. I think, again, what he means by energy is the energy of imaginative possibility, new creativity. And if we can feel ourselves being led by that, sense the allure of that newness, then we receive energy and become more and more aligned with eternal delight, that which is of God. It's not energy in the sense of a sort of mania, you know, taking some drugs and having a fantastic trip, let alone the energy of the physicist. Um, if you do this, that happens. Those forms of energy are bound by a possessive, transactional approach to life, the world as it is. No, the energy that Blake is pointing towards is the energy that comes from another place. And he's inviting us to think what it might be to live a life that is open to that other possibility. So linking all that to the question of AIs and what it is to be human, I think you can put it like this, that what Jesus shows, what it's possible to connect with, can be called a kind of spiritual intelligence that is very different both from the emotional intelligence of the everyday human experience and so certainly the artificial intelligence that the computer runs to. Put a bit like this, think of numbers which can be purely quantitative entities, the numbers that add up and that is the number that the AI understands in its search for patterns linking together in calculation. Emotional intelligence adds a felt sense to numbers. Um, you know, if you think of your age, 35, 45, 55, that's not just the sum of years which you've been alive for, but carries a sense of where you are in life as well and how you feel about life. Um, the soul of the person at 35 is very different from the soul of the person at 55. And knowing that is a kind of emotional intelligence. But spiritual intelligence takes it even a step further and knows that numbers can be known in a purely qualitative way as well. That there's not just the numbers one, two, three, four that mark parts of life, but that numbers can convey certain experiences of life. You know, oneness is the unity, is the wholeness, and that's part of life. Two is a duality where there might be a split, but also a dialogue. And that is another felt experience of life. Threeness, certainly in the Christian tradition, comes to be a better way of talking about oneness, because within the unity is the dynamism of the lover and the beloved and the loving, of the known and the knower and the knowing. And the point about that dynamism is that it's a oneness that's constantly expanding, open to more and more, receiving more and more, and hence the message of the Trinity as the Christian understanding of threeness, a purely qualitative understanding of number, a spiritually intelligent appreciation of these things that the artificial intelligence, certainly in the land of pure quantity, knows nothing about 
and maybe the person who has lived for too long in the land of pure quantity gets trapped by it as well and feels that panic and becomes fearful about what the AI may do in that panicky fantasy. Take the experience of time. Again, there's a purely quantitative aspect of time. Time that just measures the succession of events and a computer has a clock in it in order to organise the succession of events. But an emotional intelligence knows time in a different way. There's the right moment, there's the moment of meeting, there's the presence of somebody, the present that can be a moment of change. Time has different felt aspects. And then a spiritual intelligence knows something else as well. It knows the kind of time that is chirological, that's a breakthrough, that's a rupture in the succession of events in order that something new might come in. It's in a revelation, enlightenment, a little moment of nudging as well as maybe on occasion a big moment of change. And so again, the stories that Jesus tells are nudging towards that experience of time. Can we learn how to stay in the place where something very dramatic might happen that subtly brings in something completely different? To bring it back to Jesus's spiritual intelligence, Dusenbury makes it very clear that Jesus is also a person of real politique. Um, he advises people, if at all possible, not to get caught up in the law courts because that is more or less certainly going to go against you. You can't win at that game. Jesus is also the person who knows when to remain silent, like before Pilate, knowing that now, at that moment in his life, there are processes of trial and execution underway that can't be changed, not because he couldn't call on mighty forces to disrupt mundane powers, but because that wouldn't lead to the new possibility, which would be the opening, the changing of the person in front of him. And so that real politique in face of power is a crucial part of what Jesus shows. You know, there are two kinds of power in the New Testament. There's exousia, which is the power of authority, patriarchal power, the power to issue command and expect that it has effects. Jesus doesn't use that exousia power. His power is dunamis, which is a different kind of power, the power of allure, the power of patient display that might draw someone towards that which is beautiful. It's the power of love that wills the best for someone but never resorts to coercion. And indeed, all of Jesus's temptations, whenever Jesus is tempted by Satan or indeed feels tempted by one of his accusers or even by, on occasion, his disciples, what is happening when Jesus feels tempted is he's facing the temptation to use exousia power, to use force or coercion, and always resists, instead turning to the power of dunamis, this power of new possibility, like asking the question, let them who is without sin cast the first stone, or go and sin no more, or render to Caesar that which is Caesar's, the real politique moment, but render to God that which is God's, making you think and explore what that might mean and in that exploration bring in a new possibility for what it is to be human. So this 
is my sense of response to the AI crisis, not to get involved in the panic, certainly to consider what might make the world a better place given the reality of AI to do that practical work, but also to realise that that practical work is never going to be enough. It's always going to leave you in the state of concern. But what can alleviate that is by treating this as yet another moment of opportunity. The whole of life, spiritual intelligence knows, is full of these chirological moments where the kingdom of God, as opposed to the kingdom of this world, might be known, might break through. And so when reading about AIs, when hearing people like Stuart Russell say that we must learn again what it is to be human, but somehow failing to do so because because they're so caught up in a world that's shaped by exchange, by agency, by moral attempts to govern and control, that always feel they're about to fail. Rather, take a step back, draw something in the sand, consider the moment and ask what is possible to do in the here and now that actually turns towards something completely different, that is like the kiss of Jesus to the Grand Inquisitor, that is like the reception of a different kind of energy that promises eternal life, that acts with forgiveness, that acts by giving away, even to the point of giving away something of your life itself. And that might become a moment of moving away from a world governed by AI intelligence, not even shaped by the concerns of emotional intelligence, but renewed by the possibilities of spiritual intelligence, which the figure of Jesus and the stories in the Gospels is really worth studying because it reveals this possibility so brilliantly well.